0: Hello, and welcome back to our climate parenting podcast, Mum, will the planet die before I do? I'm Babita Sharma. And I'm Katie Glassbro. And thanks so much for joining us for today's episode in our second series, which is focusing on the action of doing what we all can be doing and taking inspiration from all of our guests on the changes that they're making every single day. And our next guest has been doing this for some time. Guy Watson Singh is a farmer and the founder of Riverford a farm collective that has developed into a national organic veg box scheme that delivers to around 50,000 customers every single week across the UK. Yeah, Guy set up River 30 years ago
1: and has recently sold his company to his workers. Um, he joins us today to talk about how he's making a difference with a sustainable business model and his
0: long-standing passion for agriculture. We're kind of having this conversation with you under the umbrella banner of farming and agriculture, which um, creates lots of different um, ideas in people's minds when it comes to the climate crisis. So I'm just wondering, firstly, um, your view on farming today and how you got into it. And if you call yourself very much a farmer or something else, I don't know what the right title is these days.
2: Um, yeah, no, I do call myself a farmer, um, and I got into it. I was, I was born to it. I suppose I was almost born into a pair of wellies. My parents um, were farmers, uh, and uh, you know, I from a very early age, that's all I ever really wanted to do. And uh, you know, I consider myself to be very lucky, but that's what I've, I've spent my life doing. I, I, I feel. There have been times where I'd feel a bit of a fraud, call myself a farmer, because the Riverford grew into quite a big business and I did spend a lot of my time managing a business, which ended up with a thousand co-owners in the end. But I, but and now I am at 62, very much back, being a farmer again out in the fields. And that's what I like doing.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting to us, though. Other people we're, we're speaking to in this series, we're kind of are also business owners and I think very much trying to think about how to be, how to own business differently. So what the climate crisis means in terms of ownership, in terms of being a good boss. Um, I know that Riverford has always famously done things differently. And in fact, I think your kind of founding principle is we did it our way. I just wonder if (laughs) if you can tell us a little bit more about that because yeah, you are a farmer, you are a business person, you have to make money but you you try to do all of that in your own way so would you just tell us a little bit about that
2: well we do it our way as i coined as we became employee owned um, almost 5 years ago and we were trying to come up with a i don't know something memorable that summed up you know what it was that we stood for how the business would be run into the future and and the we is, you know, that we are stronger together. That we're a collective species, and that we share this planet with seven going on ten billion others. And we better get better at sharing, or you know, there isn't going to be enough to go round. And I suppose part of becoming employee owned, and I think, and I, I, I think greed and an inability to share is is at the and think collectively is is the foundation of a lot of our problem. So I do think that, you know, the we is, is very important and, you know, what led to imp- maybe increasingly uncomfortable to be running a, you know, larger and larger business and in the end led to employee ownership. The do it is really um, the importance of doing things and doing things well, right down to the very fine detail and every last detail matters. And I have been fairly um, outspoken sometimes when speaking to social enterprise, values-driven businesses. Occasionally, I think this is less true now than it was 10 years ago, where I would meet a lot of people who felt having the values was enough and the competence, you know, wasn't, you know, that you could do, wasn't as important. Almost, I sometimes used to get the feeling that they felt they were above competence and above the detail. And I found that really, really frustrating. And and it's something that I emphasize a lot. Just doing things well. I mean, if you're trying to be a values-driven business, and do things which sometimes don't make so much commercial sense. You better make sure, damn sure, you know you're going to have higher costs, and you, 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 it's ever more important that you should be competent and at controlling those costs. And, and the final bit, our, our way is that you know we will not mindlessly follow what other people do. We will challenge. We won't always challenge. We'll seek to understand what's going on around us, how other people do things in our sector, and. And when they make sense, we're quite happy to learn from them and copy and, you know, learn from their experience. But when you see something which is just really, really stupid, you know, have the guts to challenge it.
0: Well, if I can, can we discuss with you farming as a sector, as an industry? How do you assess it now?
2: Um, Well, it you know, like most sectors and most groups of people, it's it's diverse. I mean, you know, you have some people um, of all ages, but I would say particularly new entrants who really are interested in farming for the wildlife and farming to combat climate change and so on. But you also have, you know, huge commercial interests who, who yeah, I'm gonna say, don't give a damn. Um, you know, they just wanna make money. And then you have a sort of recalcitrant, you know, this is the way we farmed all our lives, and how dare you suggest that we should farm any differently? Um, who are you know who are really rearing their heads over the last year uh, within the NFU and and uh, you know and fighting the government's attempts to come up with a more sensible environmental policy? And you know they've done pretty well under the current government that fighting that, unfortunately.
0: So where do you sit in that spectrum then? um
2: well you know i am i guess i would call myself an environmentalist but i'm a, i'm a pragmatic environmentalist i don't think we can solve all the problems you know i think farmers do need to be able to you know, make a living of what they're doing um and need to be given the right incentives um I'm, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm i definitely on the environmental side, and I'm on the side of, you know, access, public access to land, and um, I'm on the side of eating less meat uh, and and dairy and eggs. Uh, I'm not on the side of, uh, you know, dogma is almost all, always wrong, so I am not in favour of large-scale rewilding of lowland Britain. I think there are very strong arguments on small areas, and I think there are very strong arguments on the really unproductive uplands you know doing it in a selective and sensible way but i'm i'm not an advocate of large scale rewilding or i and i and i and i'm a bit of an agnostic when it comes to factory grown precision fermented protein and so on I, I i i think the jury's out on that a little bit still
1: yeah, but what you are is somebody who works the land. And as you say, you, you, you grew up on a farm with you, your family. You've owned a farm for 30, you've owned Riverford for 30 years, haven't you? So you've seen the progression of the climate crisis. And I imagine that gives you a really unique kind of position in seeing where cl- the climate patterns are going, where the patterns, um, you've seen soil degradation, not on your own farm, but you've seen that as a trend. Um so that must be a kind of difficult place to place yourself as a farmer. As you say, it's a really diverse <clears> landscape <throat> um, and you have certain kind yeah, of feelings about it. How how does that sit with you?
2: Um Well, I am very concerned about the state of our soil. And actually, I'm not going to pretend that organic farmers have all the answers either. And, and I am concerned about my own fields and the excessive cultivation of them in certain cases, you know, especially in the context of of changing weather patterns and more extreme um, weather events, particularly, you know, heavy downpours and then and droughts and, and so on. So um, I think even organic farmers, I would say old school organic farmers like me, who have, um, you know, growing vegetables generally involves beating the hell out of the soil to get a fine seedbed. Every year, sometimes more than once a year, in a way that is, you know, very, very damaging to the soil. And, you know, we try and make good some of that damage by farming in a rotation and having down to grass, but that obviously involves, well, it doesn't necessarily involve, but it tends to involve having uh, grazing livestock, sheep and cows, which, you know, have lots of issues with them as well. So, you know, there are lots of sort of unanswered questions, how we are going to farm sustainably. There's some, solutions. So, you know, we're going in quite a big way into agroforestry, growing um, nuts, hazels, nuts and walnuts with cattle and sheep grazing in between. And, um, you know, that seems to be a win-win. Uh, and, and we're having to be much, much more careful about which, which fields we cultivate, when and the length of runoff those, you know, and then putting in, um steps to divert and control the water flow and make sure that the water can pass down quickly through the soil. These are all things that, you know, in my first 20 years of growing, I probably wouldn't have thought much about at all. Um, But we had uh, two years ago, a a pretty catastrophic soil loss event on a a field which we have now planted up to agroforestry will be never be planted again, it has Uh, bands of hazelnuts growing across it Um, and that is I mean you know whether I'll ever be able to make money out well actually it's my brother's field that one but whether he you know will ever be able to make any uh, money out of it um, anyway remains to be seen I mean we're fortunate to be in a position where we have the financial buffer to be able to uh, experiment with these things in a not desperately commercial way most farmers just aren't in that position Uh, you know they are Yeah, most, you know, small, medium scale farmers are, you know, pretty cash strapped.
0: Can you sum up then the value of farming with an environmentalist title that you've just given yourself in the same sentence?
2: Well, I'm I'm quite, my daughter once said to me, actually, Dad, how can you call yourself an environmentalist when you eat meat or when you farm animals or whatever, she's a vegan? Uh, and ever since then i think i've been quite reluctant to <laughs> self-brand myself with that title um but i don't know if i'm not there aren't many so let's say i'm an environmentally conscious farmer
0: i, I haven't grown up in the world that you've grown up in um but clearly you're trying to do something that positive for the climate crisis so i mean well and you talked a little bit earlier about values. So, can you just kind of expand on that a little bit for me, and just kind of say what those values are to you as well, an individual, and then perhaps more about the business sense.
2: Well, I think environmentally, I want to leave you know the land that I, well, hopefully the planet, but, but but the land that I am responsible for, I want to leave it in a, you know, as good hopefully a better state um, than I, I found it, and a better state in terms of its ability to produce food, but also in terms of it, the wildlife that it supports and um, and it, its sequestration You know, of carbon. I, I wanna, don't want to be contributing to, to climate change. And I, 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 have to, I, I just feel dreadful for what my generation you know, especially my generation in the affluent West and especially my class being one of the relatively wealthy people in the affluent West. We have just raped this planet, you know, with no concern for those that follow us and with no concern with the wildlife that we share with it. And, you know, it's it's. I feel, you know, a collective shame when I when I speak to my children, I speak to young people and and I, and I you know, I want to do whatever I can. You know, in the years that I have left and in the wealth with the wealth that I've accumulated to try and put some of that right, and you know, maybe even show a way that we can farm better that others may uh, may like to to follow. And you know, and I and I, you know, as I said before, I don't claim to have all the answers. There are a few things, you know. I think the agroforestry we're doing is very promising. We are experimenting on my new farm with my wife Giti with some sort of smaller scale horticulture, a more human scale farming, I would suppose. I'm very, very proud of everything that Riverford stands for. But, you know, there are over a thousand co-owners there and that and that, that implies a degree of scale and an inflexibility and sometimes a lack of imagination in the way that things are done that, personally anyway so I've sort of started again having having sold Riverford uh, most I'm still work there you know maybe a half my time but I've sort of started farming again on a small scale without the commercial pressures that I had as a young man and and trying to do things in a way which I think is truly sustainable and in both environmentally but I think you cannot separate you know the human condition and how we live together from environment you know, from sustainability, you know, and, and 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 I think there's a tremendous responsibility on wealthy people who cause most of the environmental damage. I mean, it, it is more or less the damage we cause is more or less correlated to our wealth. And, 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 they're, they're, and, and wealthy people are the ones who have the choices. I mean, poor people have very few choices about how they spend their money. Wealthy people have a lot, and there's a real, you know, they have a real responsibility to behave better. And you know, and I'm and I'm just appalled by the way so many of them behave. You know, flying around the world, driving around in SUVs. It, you know, it's you know even even some of them who propose you know, claim to be environmentalists. You know, I think we really need to do better. Sorry, I went off on one a bit there. Did I answer the question? No, I
1: find that interesting. You know, we do find ourselves shopping around for bargains, don't we? And wanting to buy food at a reasonable price, often trying to buy the cheapest food. Um, and obviously that kind of implies that has a consequence downstream, doesn't it? And I know at Riverford you're conscious about um, equitable pay and eliminating modern day slavery. But that that sets you apart, I imagine. Well, I, I would hope it doesn't. I would hope every kind of farm and food chain would think as holistically as you do. But what's the impact for you as as in your business of thinking, well, we want to give workers a fair wage? that already is different I I would imagine to some of the the farmers that you're up against what challenges have you faced kind of wanting to wanting to be a kind of ethical business because obviously that's transferred some cost onto the onto the consumer who who your products will be slightly more expensive
2: um well that, that is a balance to be drawn sort of every day in every decision that we made we just awarded um you know our Well, we have a remuneration committee, which is largely made up of co-owners, so they decide what they all get paid, including me and including the managing director. And and those at the bottom are getting 10 percent next year. Those at the top are getting nothing. And, um, you know, and that is decided on a sort of fairly democratic um, basis. And it's something that I feel very comfortable with. You know, we tend to pay below market rates at the top and above market rates at the bottom. And, uh, you know, I think the income distribution in our country is is grotesque and probably only topped in terms of it. its its uh, inequality by the usa uh, and and what well, part of the thing becoming employee owned was trying to combat that so yeah that is one of our policies is to try and narrow uh, the the pay gap
0: but i i wanted to just pick up on something you said a little earlier about about i mean i think i asked you the question about values and then you talked about how you had the business you kind of working in it now 50% of the time, maybe slightly less, and you've gone back to ploughing the fields. Um, and and for me, listening to you, it sounds like you're stripping everything back a bit. Um, how has that been for you and why did you consciously want to do that?
2: You know, well, anyone who thinks wealth beyond 50 or 60,000 pounds, certainly 100,000 pounds a year is going to make them happier is, is a fucking idiot. And I say that bluntly because um, I get, you know, Accused of being a rabid communist or something, but you know, by people, or a champagne socialist or whatever. Oh, do by, people by still use that
0: a, term? I thought that was a real like '90s term. I okay, no, I haven't heard socialist. that one, but
2: so I normally get used yeah, to being rabid commie. Now, I think that probably okay. went out with the Labour government, didn't it? But, uh, but yeah, I, I have been called those things, and I, I just find it intensely irritating. I'm not doing what I'm doing. I'm not giving up anything. I love what I do. I love sharing what I have. I can't enjoy my wealth. Whilst other people, you know, are, you know, can't afford to live a decent life. I just, I just, I can't enjoy that. And, and anyone, you know, anyone who sort of, as I say, thinks having another home to worry about and, and, and yet another car to worry about or a bigger yacht or whatever, that's gonna make them happy. You know, I'm gonna say the word again, it's a fucking idiot, you know, and, and in, a, in a way which is really deeply offensive. I have friends that I knew as children who lived those lives I can't talk to them anymore. They are destroying the planet for the future. This is not a trivial thing. This is something that's very, very serious. The choices they are making are destroying the planet for the wildlife, which we no longer see, and for our children. And, you know, as you probably say, it makes me very, very angry. And Katie, the choices that we make, going back to your point, I mean, yes, I'm in a very, very fortunate position that I am able to make choices. I know how my food is produced. I even know how my furniture is produced. It's something that I've learned from my wife, actually, is the value of the choices that we make. So I spent this morning, you know, working with a small sale I'd be cut up an ash tree and planked it up that he is going to make into benches and that is the sort of it was a lovely old retired bloke and that sort of relationship is planked up by a, another lovely man on with a, in a sawmill on the farm i could get all those things done cheaply more cheaply elsewhere but the we will have benches which will give pleasure you know for years to come they will be the most environmentally sustainably of benches you could imagine and and you know what better way what better choice to make if you can rather than always seeking out the cheapest product you know, that's probably going to fall apart and be in landfill in a couple of years anyway these if you if we have the ability to make these choices and i know that i live a pretty you know ideal life in many ways and i feel very very conscious of that but we all have the you know the wealthier people amongst us you know do have the ability to make those choices and and i'm just saying you know make good
1: choices set a good example you've created that life though for yourself and just listening to you talk yeah, we're, that's why we're 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 trying to have this conversation. There's a cohort of parents that Babs and I belong to. I imagine you do as you belong to this as well. I know you're a dad who are terrified about the climate crisis, absolutely terrified about what they're leaving their kids to have to to deal with. Um, but listening to you and some of the choices that you've made in your business, so I'm just thinking about people listening to this and thinking. How they can emulate some of the kind of tenacity and the verve that you have shown, and if it strikes me listening to you talk that you're quite good with living with uncertainty. So some of the decisions that you've made, some of the ways that you've taken your business, some of the the your ability to kind of look at the climate crisis, make certain decisions, the ways that you've gone, mean that you're quite good with coping with risk. Would you say that that's that's some? Would you does that resonate with you?
2: Well, sort of yes and no. I'm I'm yes, I think I am yeah, probably quite good at living with uncertainty. In some ways I sort of relish it. But I did also grow up in a household where my father, you know, we were on the verge of bankruptcy for all my youth, and, and he didn't spare us any of it. So I'm also really quite careful with money, and maybe maybe that verges on a sort of meanness sometimes, <laughs> you know. I'm I and and I suppose that has taught me to live quite a modest life you know so I don't have you big financial you know I've got a tiny I love sailing and I've got a very small sailing boat which I share with my brother you know I don't need to have a big boat I know it wouldn't give me any more pleasure you know I drive a crappy old car you know that cost me three and a half thousand pounds you know five years ago Uh, you know I don't need those I don't need those things if you if you find that you need those things then you then no longer have those choices and of course no one needs them and and I, you know, I'm having quite a few people who work on the farm here within we've, what we call this Batterford Collective, where we have a lot of small scale businesses that we sort of host on the farm. And they're all people who have made very strong choices about how they want to leave their lives and the impact that they want to make on the world, you know, in a really, really courageous way and are making huge sacrifices. I'm sure a lot of them could go away. You know, that puts the choices that wealthier people make, it really puts them to shame, you know, and, 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 and you, know, I'm, you know, I think a lot of people living those lifestyles, as I've been going on about, you know, should feel, I'm going to say again, you know, they should feel real shame. They are destroying the planet for the rest of us.
0: But of course, there is a conversation which means that you have to bring everybody into the fold when it comes to tackling climate crisis, the good, the bad, the ugly, whoever, the fossil fuel um, creators, all of that, right? So we have to solve this collectively so with that in mind and I kind of want to hone down a little bit more about farming because farming in the conversation of climate crisis gets a bit of a it's quite polarized in the press and you know I think you said it can you be environmental and can you can you be a farmer can you be a meat eater and can you be thinking good on the planet now you are a meat eater right yeah but yet your Riverford is all based about veggie boxes yeah so talk to me about that.
2: Um, Well, I think I said earlier that I'm always distrustful of of dogmatism. Um, And, uh, you know, I farm organically and using a rotation. So the land is at least half the time and probably more like three quarters of the time is under grass, you know, restoring its fertility so that when we plough it, we can grow the vegetables. Now, you know, that if you're growing that amount of grass, you know, under the system that I grew up with, you need animals to eat that grass. I mean, you can. Actually, we do have certain areas of the farm where we have just left, and um, they do trem- support a tremendous amount of wildlife. Uh, and, and you know, we have three pairs of barn owls nesting on the farm because there's so many voles, in those, which largely in those fields which have been ungrazed. But but normally I want to develop a, a system of agriculture which is both productive and environmentally diverse and rich and hopefully sequestering uh, carbon as well and I think that that is possible in this sort of agroforestry that we are pursuing. Uh, It's very hard to do it in a kind of conventional um, vegetable rotation where you're growing annuals and that involves a lot of cultivation of of the soil. You said that we, you know, to bring about change we have to bring everyone into the conversation And, and yes, I do agree with that. I mean, I am I suppose I am in some ways on an extreme and I'm trying to show certain practices which hopefully will be commercially uh, viable, but I'm not expecting large numbers of people to follow me anytime soon. And, you know, so I sometimes find myself in debates with large scale arable farmers, you know, who are using a lot of agrochemicals in particular, a lot of um, glyphosate and who are arguing that they are regenerative farmers because they're no longer plowing you know, that they're using min or no-till, which arguably can result in an increase in carbon in your soil. It can also result in an increase in life in your soil. I honestly don't know whether it is better to spray with glyphosate and not plow, because this is when a lot of people say regenerative farming. That is the reality of what Mm. they're talking about. I honestly do not know whether that is less bad than, than, than plowing, and, you know, as conventionally has been done. So I'm, I'm not a dogmatist. You do have to involve everything in this bait. And if it is less bad, then yes, we should do it. And, and that, that, you know, that's going to be over vast numbers of acres, hundreds of times more acres than, you know, the likes of our farming. So obviously has the potential to have a bigger impact. I don't think it will have enough impact to save us and, and get into a really sort of sustainable uh, system of farming. What will? Well, I, You know, I think a large scale, okay, I think we need to eat a lot less animal protein. I think we need to eat a lot more um, nuts. Uh, I think we need to try and perennialize any crop that we can. So, a lot, you know, I think wheat, there are there is already perennial varieties of wheat perennial uh, rice has been grown commercially in China, you know, so that we don't have to cultivate the soil. We need to have a lot more diversity in our countryside. So the field should be much smaller. Uh, they should be split up by possibly rows of nut trees, but at least something that harbours some sort of um, diversity and, and, and wildlife. Uh, I think the less productive areas of the country, something you know, the moorlands and uplands, I think there's a strong argument for rewilding some of those um, and certain, you know, quite small interconnected areas, probably in our, our lowlands as, as well. Um, but I think were we to go for a large scale rewilding, we would just export even if we reduced our consumption of meat drastically, we would just end up exporting the environmental impact of our agriculture to countries where it's probably even less regulated than it is here.
1: It's that plurality of thinking that is necessary to kind of confront the climate crisis. And I've noticed you, you use the word kind of dogmatism quite often. and um,
0: Probably about kind of four of times of, already, Guy, I think. Yeah, probably a
1: fear four. of kind oh, of... I have hipo- a bit of a... Your, I have a uh, it's a it's a symptom of our time,
2: isn't it? The people don't automatically go into one camp or another, and the yeah. camps, on the whole, can't talk to each other, mm. and and you know they just throw shit at each other. It's it's really unhelpful. So um, we
1: agree, and we've noticed yeah. that as well. And actually, yeah. the climate crisis and the, the emergency is so kind of it's here, it's now. As parents, as caregivers, as grandparents, we're so desperate to find solutions. So it's looking to people like you and some of the other amazing people that we're speaking to, kind of trying to surpass that kind of dogmatism. And, you know, some of the people that we've interviewed so far for this series say we're trying to make these certain choices, but we could be seen as hypocrites. And I kind of have a feeling of like that's so limiting those those kind of um you know the debate can can become limited by some camps calling other people hypocrites. And yeah, it's such a shame. So I imagine for you, when you're trying to really think, you're trying to be thoughtful, you're trying to look to the future where the climate crisis is taking us um, and do things unconventionally and take risks. you know, I mean, I don't know how you see the future, whether you you see everybody being able to afford um organic organic food. Is that your hope for the future?
2: Um, Well, it might be a hope. can't see it happening (laughs) in my (laughs) lifetime. But, um, you know, I... I,
0: Why is that? Why is that, Guy? Um, Just because of the sheer cost of it?
2: Well, as a matter of fact, because that's how our economic system works. As a matter of fact, you know, most food increases in price from the farm to the food citizen um, by an average of, I think it's about six times. I mean, uh, if your food is supposed to account for about 10% of GDP, however, agricultural production accounts for 1.6% of GDP. If you do the maths, that implies that it multiplies six times between the farm and, and you know what someone pays for it. So, so clearly, it's our
1: system. It's our agriculture. It's our kind well, of production our economic system. economic system.
2: Yeah, you know that's how capitalism works. The primary producer always gets screwed. You know, in, unless they happen to be BP. You know, and they've got that global power that they. But you know, when it comes to farmers, you know, you know, ever since the repeal of the Corn Laws, they've been getting screwed. My point being, I suppose that if organic food costs a third more to produce on a farm level, it it wouldn't make I don't know what a sixth of a third is, (laughs) but, you know, it's quite small. Don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) But my argument is that because it multiplies in in price six times, it's almost irrelevant what it costs to produce it on the farm. So why not, as as agriculture contributes, um, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of of, um, 20 percent of global CO2 emissions, probably 50% of loss of biodiversity, so it depends what you're focusing on, but let's say 20 to 50% of environmental damage in this world, you'd think that we should be focusing on reducing the environmental damage rather than driving down the cost of production.
1: So is a way to, if, if I'm just thinking of parents listening who are, or caregivers, desperate to try and kind of affect change in how they buy, how they kind of interact with the food that they eat, if the system is the issue, would you be pointing people to a more kind of, um, I don't know, circular economy or kind of buying directly well, would from it, it, producers okay. or how, like how, how do people navigate that?
2: Well, I would say there are a few things. If you want to be a food citizen, you know, causing less environmental damage. I mean, first off, you know, make sure that you're eating less than 500 grams of meat a week. I mean, possibly you should be even including um, eggs and in that, you know, and, To a lesser extent, dairy, you know, you should be eating a lot uh, less of that, I would say. So, you know, that's probably about the single biggest thing that you can do, actually. It's really difficult to unpick all the labelling and all the greenwash around, you know, what people say about food. But if you can find food that is produced locally that you trust, you know, really a good box scheme. I mean, really support them, you know, and, you know... uh, And and one that actually grows the stuff themselves and isn't buying it in from a wholesaler and so on. So, you know, those are the things that you can do. I mean, I think beyond that, it is really, really difficult because, you know, it's it's just really hard to know how your food is produced. I, I mean, I suppose don't eat, just don't eat. I mean, I know fried chicken shops are really cheap and that's what a lot of people, you know, are dependent on, but I mean, they, the, those, you know, that and the intensive pork and actually the intensive dairy industry, those are the things that are contributing, you know, not only to a lot of misery of livestock, but to the um, deforestation of, of the Amazon, you know, our consumption of soya, which goes into feeding those, those animals. Um, but I know that I, I you know, I know I am in a very exceptional circumstance and I, I know, you know, I know how my food is produced. I mean, I'm very close to the producers. Uh, most people don't have those those options, and and if you don't have the option, you don't have the knowledge. Just try and eat less of it, I would say.
0: Guy Watson Singh there chatting to us about wow, God, where do we start? What uh, the thing that I really enjoyed when we were chatting to Guy Katie was his passion. You yeah. cannot get away from his passion, and that passion has continued and almost got heightened i think every year that he's carried on working in this sector
1: yeah yeah but he's also kept his feet on the ground like i love him keeping on saying you know he understands that he's in a privileged position he does have the ability to know where his food comes from and his pragmatism of if you if you don't then just eat less meat for example or um you know that i i, I think that's really useful because it can be so perplexing if you're standing there in the shop trying to kind of make an ethical choice or trying to make the best decision about what to buy it can be so confusing um and just his 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 whole kind of thought about how to restructure business you know this is so much more than just food isn't it this is about how we run businesses how food is produced how food is bought and sold um yeah
0: what a what an amazing man Guy Watson Singh. Thanks for coming on. Now, um, don't forget, of course, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. MumWillThePlanetDie at gmail.com. You're laughing at me, Katie, because I always, I don't know why I struggle with that. MumWillThePlanetDie. I never laugh at you, Babs. At gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We do read every single email we get. um, So please do get in touch. And also you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Just use the hashtag MumWillThePlanetDie. Join us next time on Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? We're going to be chatting to Nadia Whittam, MP, who led the UK Parliament's first ever debate on climate education. And we're going to be chatting to her about how she believes and is campaigning for climate change to be part of the school curriculum. See you then. Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? is a shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.